Go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Joshua chapter 23. Joshua 23. And uh, I mentioned um, last week that the last three chapters in the book of Joshua function as a unit. And here we are told that the people of God are intended to continue to enjoy the promised rest of God. But that requires the people of God to be faithful to God, to remain faithful to Him, to pursue a life of faithfulness, a life of obedience. That's part of the keys to experiencing rest in the Lord, to experiencing and enjoying the fullness of His presence in our lives. It requires that we be a faithful people. Joshua, the the leader of God's people, is in this chapter gathering together a second group of individuals. He's now gathering together all of the leaders of the nation of Israel, and he's calling them together so that he can give them some final instruction towards faithfulness that they are supposed to press into the lives of the people of God And what he's doing in this chapter is he's actually motivating them towards faithfulness. He's giving them incentives and motivation to remain faithful to the Lord, which is really, really important. In fact, just look at verse 6 for a moment with me. I want to show you kind of the central part of this chapter, it says, therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand or to the left. This verse, verse 6, drives this entire chapter. It reminds us of the point of these last three chapters. We are to be a people who are faithfully obedient to the Word of God, not turning away to the left or to the right, staying on the path that has been marked out for us. So just notice this, that the people of God, this should come as no surprise to you, are called to be a people of faithfulness, of obedience. I'm going to use those two terms interchangeably because to be obedient is to be faithful, and to be faithful is to be obedient. And this is so relevant for us, this idea of of motivating towards holiness Because the the motives and the incentives that Joshua gave here in chapter 23 to the people of Israel are really the very same things that the New Testament writers give to us. Nothing really changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament in terms of motivating obedience. And part of what we need to understand as Christians is that obedience is critical to the Christian life. Jesus himself made this abundantly clear. He said that if you love me, you will what? Obey. Obey my commandments. You see, when God 
changes a sinner's heart, when He saves a sinner, when He gives them new life, when He removes the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, the greatest miracle of salvation is not just that God makes a people who do right things, it's that He makes a people who want to do the right things, who love to obey Him and follow His commands. One of the truest signs that you are a follower of Jesus Christ is that you love the Word of God and you long in the depth of your heart to be faithful to Him, to be obedient to God. And so you see, if that's the call upon our lives, if that's what God is is producing in our lives, then, then motivation to faithfulness is vital for us as followers of Jesus Christ. It's vital because it proves we are saved. It is evidence that we are truly children of God. It is vital because, listen, when the church is full of disobedient people, it loses its effect in the world. And it's vital because faithfulness increases our joy. It's one of the means by which we experience greater joy in the Lord in this Christian life. And let me say this, it's vital, these motivations for holiness, listen, because faithfulness is actually hard. It's hard. Obedience is hard. And we struggle with it every single day, don't we? And God knows that, and so He wants to help us. He wants to motivate us. So how do you motivate people? How do you motivate yourself to obey? How do we motivate one another? Well, the question we need to answer is, how does God motivate us to obey? And Joshua is giving them, the people of Israel, the motivation, the truth they need to obey, and it is the motivation and truth that we need to obey. So listen, if you're here today, and maybe it's been a particularly dry spiritual season for you, and the the obedience factor in your life has been waning, the hunger for obedience, the desire for obedience, the evidence of obedience in your life is simply dry. It's, It's been absent. You're kind of growing apathetic or lethargic spiritually speaking, if it's been hard for you, if you have been failing and lacking motivation, let me encourage you to listen, would you pay attention this morning? Would you open your heart to what the Lord God Almighty wants to say to you and how He wants to motivate you to greater faithfulness to Him? I want to read this entire chapter together. So let's look at chapter 23, verse 1, and we'll read all the way through verse 16. It says, a long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, 
Be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as He promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, And make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until He has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which He commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that He has given to you. Faithfulness is the call. And here... We are being motivated to continue to be faithful to the Lord, and we see that in three ways. First, notice this, we're motivated to faithfulness when we regularly remember the grace of God. This is the the natural starting point for any kind of motivation to obedience. It is to regularly be refreshed and reminded of the grace of God, and that's precisely what Joshua does throughout this passage, but particularly in verses 1 through 5. And you notice that that Joshua, as he begins, he's, he's old, the text makes that clear, it doubles up on it. He's old, his life's almost over, he's coming to the end, and his concern, this is so fascinating, his concern, old man Joshua, who has led the people of God so faithfully for so many years, his concern at the end of his life is not his comfort and retirement plan. Notice that? His greatest concern is for the faithfulness of the generation that is going to follow him. Nothing against retirement, (laughs) but this is such an important call to those of us who are in Christ. 
The greatest desire of leaders in the church, the greatest desire of those who have walked faithfully for so many years with the Lord ought to be that those who are coming up in the Lord, those who are being saved, the young generation that is following, that they would know the Lord and follow Him faithfully. This, listen, is a mark of a true spiritual leader. Not only concerned about their own obedience to the Lord, although that is primary, but secondarily about those who will be around long after they are gone. And so I love this. He gathers all the leaders together, all the heads of these clans, all the judges, all those people in positions of leadership amongst the nation. And he says to them, I'm on my way out, but you now must carry the torch of faithfulness. So let me just say, by way of application, especially listen to those of you who are in positions of leadership, whether it be in your home, whether it be in this church as small group leaders, as elders, as ministry leaders, however you are leading in the Lord, this ought to be your greatest concern, that the people you are leading are being led to faithfulness to God. And if you're older in the Lord today, if you're older in the Lord today, the work for you is not done. Older saints, don't pull back from influencing people for the Lord. Press in, lean in, pour yourself into the next generation. Call them to be faithful to the Lord. Remind them, listen, of all of the good things that the Lord has done. Notice that's exactly what Joshua tells these leaders to do. He says to them in verse 3, you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all those nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. All that God has done. This is the generation who witnessed all that the Lord has done, as opposed to the generation who follow, who hasn't seen what they have seen, who hasn't experienced what they have experienced. They're eyewitnesses, think about this, to these miraculous works of God. They were there when they walked through the Jordan as the Lord parted it for them. They were there as they marched around Jericho and watched God level the city by His power. They were there all over the place as God conquered king after king after king after king, and they stormed across the land all because the Lord fought for them saying, you are there, you remember it, don't you forget, and don't you forget to press that into the generation that follows, that, that's not going to have the exact same experience that you have had. And he does three things here. He, he shows them God's past grace, he shows them God's present grace, and he reminds them of God's future grace, all to motivate their faithfulness to God. And in Christianity, this is so, so important. Listen, grace always comes before and drives obedience, always. So he says, remember, remember God's past grace? Remember, look at this verse 10, I love this. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you. I mean, at this point in Israel's history, listen, there were, there were grandparents sitting around with their grandchildren, hopefully, telling them about the time when they were conquering the land, and, and they, were, they were marching across, and, you know, they picked up their sword, they turned, and there was a thousand men standing in front of them, and everybody turned and ran, and they just were holding up their sword. They're like, look, it wasn't me. The Lord fought for us. It's amazing how quickly we can forget what God has done for us, isn't it? It's amazing how quickly we, we can see God faithfully answer prayers. We can see God provide in miraculous ways. And then all of a sudden, the circumstances of life kind of 
capture us and surround us and overwhelm us, and we begin to act and live as if God was never faithful in the past. It's so important that we remember God's past grace in our lives. Look what God has done for you. And, and the emphasis here in the text in the original Hebrew is this, like the amazing feats of God. His loving kindness to bless you and shower His grace upon you, to be faithful to His promise to bring you into the land flowing with milk and honey. But look at His present grace in verse 4. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. I'm still giving this to you right now. I'm giving it all to you. There's this beautiful picture of present grace. What's crazy is that they have been done the battle for a long time. They've been enjoying God's rest in cities they didn't build, with vineyards they didn't plant. They are experiencing in this moment the present grace of God who has been faithful to all His promises, who is remaining faithful. And look at this, verse 5, who will be faithful. I love this. Look what God will continue. The Lord your God will push them back. He'll drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land. God is still going to continue to do what He's promised to do. And then you notice that after all of this grace that's pointed out here, then you have verse 6. And you notice how verse 6 starts? This is, this is really important. You notice that word? Look at it right there. Verse 6. Look down. What's the first word you read? Therefore. Now, here's a little, I mean, you've probably heard this before. Whenever you, whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible or anywhere for that matter, you need to ask what question? What is it there for? What's it there for? But, but do you see the flow here of thought? So now, in verse 6, he's commanding them to obedience, but you notice, you notice that it was after he reminds them of all the grace of God, past, present, and future, because of the grace of God, in other words, all of this grace that you have seen, that you have experienced, that you're experiencing right now, that will come, because of that, obey. So important. Grace must constantly come before obedience in your life. Otherwise, listen, all of your obedience will become drudgery. There will be no joy. It will become frustrating, and it will only be temporary. Grace must dominate your heart before you can obey from the heart. See, the Christian faithfulness and obedience is not just about duty. It is about delight. And grace motivates that. I mean, I want you to think about this. Listen, even the Ten Commandments, if you go back to Exodus 20, even the Ten Commandments begin with grace. A lot of Christians miss this. Here's how God starts the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I have saved you by my power and by my grace. Now, here's how you must be faithful to me. In every book of the Bible... The New Testament, all the epistles that deal with giving instruction to the church, what you'll notice is this pattern that, that at the beginning, it's front-loaded with all of these indicatives. That is, let me tell you the truth of grace, grace. Think of Ephesians, the riches of God's grace that have been lavished upon you. Grace, 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 grace. Here's what God has done for you. And then the last half focuses on obedience. 
in the book of Romans that we've been studying this past year and are going to pick up again in this new ministry year in September, what's so fascinating is the first 11 chapters are all about the grace of the gospel. Here's what God has done in the gospel. Here's the, the beauty of the gospel, the riches of the gospel. And then you get to chapter 12, 12 chapters later, and he says, all right, now offer yourself as a living sacrifice unto God. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But I'll be honest with you, when, when I get up in the morning, my mind usually begins thinking of all that I need to do. <laughs> not what's already been done for me. No wonder we often feel so Weary and tired and obeying God seems so hard and arduous. So how do we regularly remember grace? Well, I, I think what Joshua is instructing them to do is to keep it primary, but how do we do that? Well, first, I think, I love what some have said, is we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Every morning we wake up, we need to be reminded of the gospel. The gospel is the most amazing feat that God has ever done for anybody in all of history. I mean, just think about the amazing feat of the gospel. God became a human being for the sole purpose of rescuing sinful, rebellious human beings. The incarnation is an incredible feat of God, but not only that, is we see the crucifixion where God dies as a substitute for sinners. And then we see the amazing feat of the resurrection where God in Christ overcomes death and sin. And then we see the amazing feat of the exaltation where Jesus Christ goes to the Father and rules and reigns with all authority. And we see in our own lives, listen, in the gospel, we see the regenerating work of God to give us a new heart with new passions. We see a justification of God where he makes sinners like us right with him only by faith in Jesus Christ. We need the gospel front and center in our lives. Here's another way that we can, we can keep grace primary in our lives. This right here, what we're doing right here is one of the ways God has designed us to continually soak in and immerse ourselves in his grace. Do you realize that? You realize coming to church on Sunday is one of the ways God says, I want you to be refreshed by my grace. So you're going to come and you are going to sing about my grace towards you. And you are going to read about my grace towards you. And you're going to hear about my grace towards you. You're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper where you see and visibly are reminded about my grace towards you. You see, we need to be overwhelmed by God's grace. And so weekly gathering on Sundays is critical for our spiritual health. And not just on Sundays. We need regularly to be amongst the people of God. That's why we do small groups midweek. We need to be up things like prayer and praise. Like this isn't just like you just should attend. It's not just duty bound. This is like I need this for my soul. I need the grace of God. I need to be reminded and refreshed by it. And so I got to be with the people of God. We spend so much time, listen, out in a world, out in a world that is opposed to God, that is relentlessly, listen, attacking our souls. We have an enemy in, in Satan, in the world, and in our own flesh. And if we are not regularly being reminded and stirred to look at the grace of God, we're in big trouble. I think, let me give you one more way. I think we need to be better at pointing out evidences of God's grace in one another's lives. And in our own life. You know, I don't know if you found this, but 
for sure, this is a normal human reality, but especially in this pandemic season, don't you notice that everybody has a lot of things to complain about? Don't you notice when somebody's like, hey, how you doing? Ah, you know, you know, it's, you know. I don't like what's going on here. I don't like this. We, we talk so much about we, what we don't like, about the problems in our lives, and, and we talk so little about the grace of God that is actually so evident in our lives. And some of us are terrible at even seeing God's grace because we never think about God's grace towards us. Journal it. Write it down. Think about it. Be, be clear. When you talk about it with people. Point it out when you see evidence of God's grace in people's lives. This is one of the ways we can keep it front and center. center. Joshua does and then he motivates them by grace. Secondly, vigilantly resist the snare of sinners. He issues a warning here in verses 6 through 14, and he reminds them of the snare of sinners, and he highlights two things here that are are intended to protect them from the snare of sinners. The first thing is this, a dedication to the Word. Again, that's the central command. It's all about obedience in verse 6. It's very clear, verse 11, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Don't turn aside to the right or to the left. Stay on this path of obedience. Have you ever been on like a road trip and and decided to take some kind of a shortcut or maybe go off the beaten path thinking that this way would be quicker, maybe it would be better, maybe be a little bit easier? Only to add you know, five hours to your trip, or... <laughs> we like to take the easier road. It's natural to the human heart. We, we want it easier. We want it more comfortable. And the truth is that the way of the Lord is not always easy. In fact, oftentimes it's hard. The, the road is a narrow road. Our culture offers routes through life with wider roadways, less demanding terrains, more comfortable weather conditions, more attractions along the way to keep us entertained. It even promotes shortcuts and fast lanes that promise to get us where we aspire to go quicker and easier. Joshua, however, challenges us to stick unswervingly to the only truly reliable path for life, the one in God's Word. This is so central to spiritual success. You cannot thrive as a Christian without the Word of God, regularly digesting it, meditating upon it. This is Psalm 1 stuff. This is Joshua 1 stuff. This is so vital to Christian health and spiritual growth and success. Without it, you shrivel up and die spiritually. And we need, as the people of God, a renewed dedication to knowing the Word of God. We must know the facts, the details. We must know the Word of God, but we must also know the vision that it provides, the the heart-stirring, life-giving vision it provides for salvation and sanctification and for how to look at life, its purpose, and where true satisfaction and joy is found. But there's a second thing that he points us to here that is critical for our ability to vigilantly resist the snare of sinners, and that is this, separation from the world. We must be dedicated to the Word, but we must also be separate from the world. In verse 7 through 13, it's 
it's incredible here. He says, look at what he says. Obey the word of God. Obey the word of Stay dedicated to the word of God. Why? Look at verse 7. That you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. You shall cling to the Lord God. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. Look at verse 12. If you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you. And then look at this vivid language. A whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes. That sounds painful. This is serious stuff he's telling them. So obey God's law. Why? So that you don't mix and get into false worship. The reason we obey is to keep ourselves unstained from the world. As 1 John says, to keep ourselves from idols. The things that would pull us away from worshiping God the way he calls us to worship him and instead call us to worship the things of this world. Obedience to God's law and separation from those who do not follow God's law is what he calls us to here. And if they don't, they will inevitably abandon the Lord. That's the idea here. And by the way, this is exactly what happens. This is the story of the nation of Israel. Here's God's grace. Here's his warnings. It's so abundantly clear. And then all you have to do is flip over to the next book, the book of Judges, and listen to what we read in Judges chapter 2, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. In chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, so the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons. Listen to this. Here it is. This is the reason here. And they served their gods. They didn't separate They mixed in with the surrounding nations, and eventually the temptations and the pull of the pagan nations was too strong for them to resist. And instead of influencing the nations towards God, the nations pulled them away from God and influenced them towards ungodliness. By the way, this mixing with the nations and the marriage mixes here. This isn't a racial issue, okay? This is not the Bible forbidding interracial marriage. Hallelujah. (laughs) This is a spiritual issue. That's what he goes on to talk about. The issue is, is worship. When you mix in with the other nations who have not bowed the knee to Yahweh God, guess what's going to happen? You are going to be enticed by them. You will fall away and worship them. And this, by the way, happens to the the strongest of Christians who like to mix too much with the world. This happened to Solomon. Solomon, the wisest, like given 
supernatural wisdom from God wrote so much of the Old Testament in terms of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, wisdom flowing out of him, and at the end of his life, when he got old, guess what? He accumulated all of these women, all of these wives unto himself from all the other nations, and he began to build altars to their gods. As Christians, we must grasp this because, listen, unlike Israel, we are actually sent to live in the midst of a foreign land. It's almost more important for us to grasp this. We're sent. John 17, Jesus sends us into the world. He doesn't remove us out of the world, and He prays that we would be protected. We're sent into the thick of things, into countries and and neighborhoods and workplaces, but don't, listen, don't mistake being sent in to mean we don't need to separate from, okay? These two things are complementary. We're called, as is kind of the often um, quoted cliche saying, to be in the world, right, but not of the world. This is a reminder that we are easily influenced. I just, we need, we need to hear this. We are far more easily influenced than we realize. It's also a reminder that we are subtly influenced, oftentimes without even realizing how much we've actually been influenced. So, so here's the question for you flowing out of this. Who or what is influencing you today? There are some obvious things to consider, and, and we must consider. Some of us are, are more in the world in the sense that our relationships, our friendships, our business associates, our co-workers, our club's involvement, social involvement in the world, and, and we need to be careful. All of those kind of things need to be evaluated carefully to determine how much of their influence, the way of, of thinking and believing and, and behaving and looking and acting are infiltrating our own lives. But our generation is unique. Do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up? You remember getting asked that question? Kids, you, you can answer this. What, what do you want to be when you grew up? You go ahead. You can tell your parents if you want. You don't have to tell me. I, I remember being asked that question as a kid all the time. I asked that question to kids. What do you want to be? I asked that my own kids. They still can't figure it out. They're like, I don't know. I don't want to grow up yet. Some of you adults are still <laughs> trying to figure it out. There was a recent poll done. This is fascinating. A bunch of kids asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? You want to know what the number one answer is? Policeman, fireman, professional athlete, social media influencer. (laughs) And it's not even close. Astronaut was a distant second. (laughs) But can you just think about that for a minute? Our generation of kids... The thing they want to be most, because this is what they're, they're being exposed to most, think about this, is a social media influencer. It's built into the name. It's not even hidden. Their job is to influence people to do things, to buy things, to look a certain way. Perhaps our greatest danger is what we have subtly been immersed into. 
a digital world where we are influenced daily by the world without even realizing it. And you're not just being influenced, by the way, to buy a product or to hear the news. You are daily being influenced to believe a worldview. A a view of the world that stands in opposition to God, that is self-serving, self-promoting, and fuels selfishness in the human heart. A worldview that diverts your attention and affection and adoration away from God and towards someone or something else. We are daily being bombarded with messages that tell us we can find greater joy, greater satisfaction, greater purpose, and greater meaning in something this world has to offer. But Christians have always fought to resist the snare of sinners. The way that we we think, we speak, we live must be radically different from the world. What's the answer to all of this? Separation. You must draw some lines in your life. For some of you, that means ending some relationships, ending some relationships with people or places or things. For some of us, it's physical. For many of us, maybe it's digital. And we need to replace those with what draws us nearer to Jesus and influences us towards greater faithfulness and obedience. There is a clear separation between the people of God and the people of this world, and the way that we maintain this separation is with a strict focus on obedience. I go out in obedience into the world, and I remain pure in obedience. And the thing that moves us out into the world is obedience, and the thing that keeps us pure is obedience. And the moment that God's Word stops becoming the priority, the moment that we immerse ourselves more in the world than we do in the Word, we begin to drift. And this is a call to vigilantly resist the snare of sinners, to tell it to your own heart, to tell each other. Sometimes that warning isn't enough, and to motivate us in in a final way, this is crazy. You know what Joshua does? He threatens them. Just warn them. He threatens them. In order to remain faithful, here's what we need to constantly recall the result of rebellion. In 14 through 16, did you notice, even at the end of 13, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you, And what he does here in this final section is he reminds them, look, God's been faithful to do everything he promised he would do, but don't forget that God has also promised, he's also promised that if you are unfaithful to him, if you are disobedient to him, there will be consequences, there will be punishment. He's made it abundantly clear in his word. And so he's saying to them, don't think for a second that God will not be faithful to do not only the good things he's promised, but the hard things, the tragic things that he's promised if we are unfaithful. And friends, listen, listen, godly threats are an incredible deterrent to obedience, to disobedience, excuse me. They motivate obedience. This is a New Testament reality as well. Look at Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. It'll be on the screen behind me. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. 
For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? I mean, it's the same rationale. This is exactly what he's doing. He's warning them of the results of rebellion. God's going to keep all of his promises. If you stick with him, you will prosper. If you mix in with the world and marry the world, if you abandon him and turn to other gods, don't fool yourself into thinking that you will be exempt from the judgment of God. We are called as believers throughout the book of Hebrews in particular to listen to what we have heard lest we drift away. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Joshua ends this sermon, if you will, with a threat. One commentator said, clearly Joshua has never taken a preaching class. Maybe preaching classes haven't learned well enough from Joshua. You see, threats are necessary to prevent falling away. You have to keep listening to the gospel and trusting the gospel. Listen, church, you have to keep holding fast to the gospel or you will go to hell. You have to persevere to the end or you will go to hell. This is what the Word of God teaches over and over and over again. But, but before you, like, freak out about all of this, I need you to hear this. There is a sweetness to the severity of God here, okay? There is a kindness in this kind of a threat and a, and a warning. It's kind of like picking up, you know, a, a cigarette pack. I haven't, you know, I've never smoked, but I know this. I remember as a kid when they started putting those pictures on the back of cigarette packages. I remember finding them on the ground, right? It was, it was horrific, it was terrifying. You, know, you look at this mouth that like is rotted out and like cancerous and like holes in the face, or, and, you know, somebody on a ventilator stuck in their throat because this is the consequence of smoking cigarettes, right? You remember that? What's the goal there? To terrify you, to stop you, to threaten you so that you don't end up like this. And the threats of God are a gracious warning to trust the Lord to constantly experience His promised blessing and salvation. It is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And listen, if if I did not know the judgment that awaits those who abandon the gospel, listen, and, and choose rebellion, I may not stay faithful and obedient till the end. I may not make it to heaven. The results of rebellion are not trivial. They are eternal. When God threatens us, He doesn't do so so that we live terrified Christian lives. Listen, but so that we will stay with the gospel and make it all the way home. God wants to lead us all the way home safely so And he wanted to give them here the full blessing, and so it is with us. 
He wants them to experience everything that He's promised, all the goodness of the land where they will worship God alone, where they will know His presence and His power, and they will be with their God as He is with them. He wants us, church, listen, to know a better country, a better land, a city with an unshakable foundation. And the only way is if we die and are found clinging only to the gospel. That's it. These are the motivations we need and that we need to apply to to others in order to motivate faithfulness. Reminders of the grace of God, calling people to vigilantly resist the snare of sinners, and even, by the way, threatening people with the promise of judgment from God's Word. And some of you here today, you needed to hear this for your own life, for your own soul. God is calling you back to Himself graciously calling you back to Himself, or perhaps He's graciously calling you to Himself for the very first time, to trust Him, to find forgiveness and freedom, to find true joy and life in Christ Jesus. And if that's you, what a gift of God's grace. Come to Him and enjoy His grace. But for some, God is calling you like he was calling these leaders, listen, to go after someone. You know somebody. You know somebody who has proclaimed the name of Jesus, professed to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and you are watching them walk away, and you know, you know what they're doing to their soul, and God is calling you. This isn't just like my job as a pastor. It's not your small group leader. This is your job as, as a brother or sister in Christ to go after your brother and sister, to call them back, to, to show them. What do you do when you, when you go to them? You show them, and you remind them of the grace of God in their life. Look how God saved you. Look what God has done for you. Look at how He has lavished His grace all over your life. Come back to Him. And then you warn them, you warn them, listen, about mixing with the world, and you call them to be separate. And then, listen, if necessary, you threaten them with the judgment of hell, the wrath of God that awaits all those who have never, never turned to Jesus Christ truly. And listen, if they are truly saved, they'll come back. They will. And if they don't, then they may just be revealing, listen, that they went out from us because they were never really of us. 